You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Adam Vega. I am the primary teaching pastor over at Mercy's Door Community Church. So glad you guys are with us this morning. Purpose Church, First Baptist. I love seeing your beautiful faces. Uh, Mercy's door, so good to see you out here. Um, yeah, well, if you could get your way over to First John chapter three, that we can ha- all have it in our hands as I preach this morning, that would be a blessing to me. We've actually been preaching the letter of First John for some time uh, at Mercy's door, and we moved into the letter of First John directly from 15 months in the Gospel of John. And after this, we're going to be doing 2 John and then 3 John. We're just kind of doing the life work of John. I might stop at Revelation. I don't know that I'm ready. But uh, we're, we're, we're jumping into the letters of John, having done a good labor that I know that you've done in your churches uh, ahead of time to really make sure that we're getting right in our own hearts the primary message of the gospel of John as we then turn our attention to his letters, to his epistles. Now, there are some historical facts that are useful for you to know as you engage your mind about the things that John is teaching us this morning, and I want to hold them out to you quickly. John lived the majority of his life after the ascension of Jesus in the area around Jerusalem, caring for Jesus' mother. And church history testifies that when Jerusalem fell around A.D. 70, that John went and lived out the rest of his days in the area of Ephesus. And you guys might know if you read your book of Acts that Paul is the one who planted the church in Ephesus. And then some years later, they get to be pastored by another apostle, by the apostle John. And he writes these letters to his friends, to this network of house churches that he's overseeing in love. And we know that he's writing to his friends. We know he's writing to Christians, to the brothers, because he says at the end of his letter that the reason for writing it is that is so that those who believe in the name of the Son of God would know that they have eternal life. John's purpose in writing this letter is that those who believe in the name of the Son of God would know that they have eternal life. And so this letter has been called a letter of assurance. It's a labor of a loving pastor to people that he knows to encourage them to know what they know to rest in it, to be assured in it, to have assurance in the gospel, in the labor of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And they would have known this gospel because John wrote one of them. And he's among them and he's been testifying it. And he had already written the gospel by the time he's writing his letters according to our understanding of when these things were penned. And so whether or not they actually held a copy in their hands or whether they learned it directly from the mouth of John, John, who wrote one of the gospels, is now writing them a letter. And as we pick up in chapter 3, in verse 11, we kind of see him start to make these circular arguments. You know, when I say to you that the purpose of the letter is that you would know that you would have solidity in your understanding of what Christ did for you, I, I know that because John uses the word to know in this letter 38 different times. And this letter is like this long. 38 times he talks about knowing what you know. And just in our passage today, we are going to see him talk about knowing something four different times. And I've broken up my preaching this morning into these four uh, areas that, that John emphasizes of knowledge, okay? And he opens up like this, verse 11. This is the message 
that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now, we know at Mercy's Door, and, and hopefully you know also, that whenever John uses the phrase, in the beginning, he's always talking about the beginning, the beginning, the beginning. And John opens up his gospel account saying, in the beginning was the word, Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God, and he, he was God, and he was in the beginning with God, that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and this life was the light of men, that the light shines in the darkness, that the darkness has not overcome it. This is the beginning that John refers to when he's talking about his Lord Jesus. He wants to elevate this portrait of the Christ that takes us off of just the earthly ministry of Christ and takes us all the way back to see him for who he really is, the one true God made incarnate, taking on flesh on our behalf. So whenever he uses this word, and he comes back to it so often in the beginning. He's trying to root you in the person of Jesus, that he is himself God. Now, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. Well, here's another way that I know that he's wanting to take us all the way back. Because he says, in the beginning, and then starts bringing up who? Next verse, Cain. Cain and Abel, he's, he's all the way back in the garden as he's thinking about in the beginning. And so whether you want to look at, at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth with two feet and he taught with his mouth, you can look at when the Jews tried to corner him and, tried to, and they tried to say, hey, hey, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds to them, this is the first and greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and there's a second like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So whether you're like, Adam, I don't think he's going all the way back to the beginning. I think he's just talking about at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and what they heard at first as Jesus taught the gospel. Well, even that. The message of Jesus from the beginning was that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. But what's the bad news? Well, you got to go back to the beginning, beginning to understand the bad news. And we start reading about a Cain who strikes down his brother, Abel, don't we? Now, here's the bad news. The good news from the beginning is that the message we heard from the beginning, beginning is we are to love one another. We see it in the creation account. We see the love of God overflowing into a creation story where he creates all people and all things, and he declares it very good, except when he sees man alone. He looks at the man that he made, and he sees that he does not have a partner fit for him, and then what does he do? He takes this man who he fashioned from the dust, who he breathed life into, and he puts him into a deep sleep, and he takes a rib from him, and he fashions for him a helper fit for him. And when Adam wakes up, he looks upon his wife and he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken from the man. And God looks out at what he's made. Now he declares this very good. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And we read the account of how Adam knew his wife Eve and there's this command that comes behind them and this love that they are enjoying, this love, this relationship directly with their king, with their creator, with their God and with one another where he says, now go, multiply, be fruitful and multiply and go out into the earth and subdue it. 
in the very beginning, the message before sin ever enters the picture, the message is love the Lord your God and love one another. Go out and in that love, subdue the earth, multiply, fill this place up, expand the borders of Eden, take what I have given you and, and, and multiply it out over the face of the earth. This was always the wonderful, mysterious plan of God to advance his love in his children on the face of the earth. But then what happens? Well, you know what happens. Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God. They, they, they want to kick him off of his throne, and they want to be king. They want to question whether or not their creator knows best, whether or not their creator is truly wise, whether his plan is truly good for them, or if he's holding out on them. And what happens shortly after? They hide from one another, they hide from God. You remember, God comes after, after Adam and Eve sin in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? And he finds that he is hiding. He has covered himself. And very quickly, they start pointing fingers at each other, blaming one another. And then as soon as they're out of the garden, what happens? Cain strikes down Abel. And we see the beginning of a spiral of hatred against brother that stems from hatred of God. But John says that from the very beginning, the message that we heard was that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so what has changed in us, what, what John is arguing has changed in us, is that we have been restored by the Spirit of God into a love that we were called into from the beginning. So that when you look into your brother's life and you see righteousness, you do not detest him for it, such that you want to strike him down, but that you love him for it, and you want to build him up in that righteousness in order that you can both enjoy the fullness of the love of God. This is drastically different from what we have been experiencing since the fall of creation in the Garden of Eden. It says, this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And listen, I know that for many of us, we start thinking about loving one another, and John is already anticipating your question. Okay, I think I know what one another means. I think I know who my brother is, but what does love mean, and how can I know that I've got it. He says in his next argument that we know that we've passed from death to life. Remember, that's the whole point of his letter, that you would know that you have eternal life. We know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love the brothers. We know, this is verse 14, that we've passed out of death and into life because we know, because we love the brothers. And I don't know whether or not you are like me, where you, have, where you struggle to really credit God with doing a work by the Spirit of assurance of your eternal life when you love your brother. Do you think of it that way? I got a message yesterday from a member of our church, AJ, I'll call you out. He sent it out to a few friends, and he said that those storms that ripped through on Friday down, in, down south of Mascuta, they did a great number in his town, and he lost three trees in his yard and a couple of barns took some damage and he just said, I could use some help. And I took that message and I forwarded it to a bunch of people in the church and I never doubted for a second that the need was going to be taken care of. And so when Justin, you showed up and Benton, when, when you <coughs> showed up for these guys, whoever else showed up, <coughs> I don't need to name you and embarrass you. 
<clears throat> and rob you of your glory. But listen, when you showed up and you laid down your life, your Saturday, your plans, all that you had, because you got a text, and in a moment you turned around and you went and started hacking down fallen trees into, into lumber to dry out, and that's how you spent your, your Saturday instead because you saw a brother in need. Do you recognize that that was evidence of new life in you? See, that's what John is trying to tell us as he wants us to be assured of our eternal life. He says, this is how you know that you've passed from death to life because you love the brothers. And so when you received that call from a brother, hey, I'm in need, and you laid yourself down and you went to meet that need, that was the spirit testifying to your spirit that you are, in fact, a child of God. Do we think this way? You might counteract and you might say to me, you know, Christians are not the only ones who can do nice things for each other. So is everybody who's, who's doing something nice for somebody having assurance that they have eternal life? And I would say no, and here's why. Because in the fall, in the beginning, remember the beginning, in the beginning, as soon as mankind determined that my creator is not my king, that as a created vessel that I am going to go my own way, they became hopelessly sick and dead under the curse of sin. When humanity detached itself from the loving care and kingship of God and its rebellion, even its good works became as filthy rags in the sight of God. And it is not evidence of life. In fact, it's evidence of death. Let me try to drive this home for you. If you determined in your own strength to climb to the highest mountain, a physical mountain, like a Buddhist monk, and to sit on your hands and to detach yourself from the cares of the world, from the pleasures and lusts of the world, to seek to do no harm and to do no good, but to seek the light within and to seek inner peace. And you did no harm and no good. You have done a wicked rebellion against your creator, God. Even you who could say, what sins have I done? Let me tell you what sins you have done in that moment where you have spent your whole life separated from mankind seeking to do no harm and no good. One, you've determined that light is going to be found within yourself. You've determined that you can detach yourself from this world and achieve some higher goodness other than the Lord God whom you were created by and for. And you were not created for isolation, to be alone. You were created for a family, for a community of oneness with God. We have to think more deeply about just how much sin corrupted all things in mankind. Only the Christian, renewed by the Holy Spirit, can authentically love somebody with the love that is given to him by God. Somebody who is not united with Christ cannot love somebody like Christ. Even his own good deeds are extensions of his own self-righteousness and selfishness. And so when you, Christian, have a particular love for the brothers, this is what John wants to focus on this morning, when you have a particular love for the brothers, not for the world, not even for the lost, but your love for the brothers is a testimony to life, new life in you. When you look in and you see your God in your brother and it causes you to love your brother all the more, this is evidence that that same God is dwelling in you. This is really good news, John says, and it's one of the things that you can turn to in your hour of doubt. 
My Bible flipped to Revelation. I guess we are going to have to preach it sometime. Here we are. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, just to drive that point home. We know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. We know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, we get our, our next knowledge. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So first he says, how can we know that we've passed from, from death to life? Well, because we love the brothers. Well, how do we know love? Well, because he laid down his life for us. Now, I want to be really careful on this sermon point, and I think it's the primary sermon point for me this morning, that to know love, John says, we, by this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. And what we're going to be tempted to do is say, this is how we know how to love. That Christ laying down his life for us is primarily about setting an example for us about how to now go love our brothers. And it absolutely is the model for how to love your brother. We, did, we laid out our lives. John says that. But that's not how we know love. We don't know love by looking to it as an example. We know love by tasting and seeing and receiving it for ourselves. It's an entirely different matter to know something because you studied it and learned how to emulate it, no, learn how to emulate it versus knowing something because you've received it for yourself. You know love because he laid down his life for you. For you. That's how you know love. I know steak because I've eaten it. I can learn how to prepare a steak by watching somebody else make it, but I can't know steak until I've eaten it, right? I know love because I have received it. Not just seen it play out somewhere over there, but I have been a direct recipient of the love of Christ. And more specifically, that love was him laying down his life for me. And church, this is my call to you. You must receive the love of Christ before you can give the love of Christ to anybody. And you do not attain the love of Christ by emulating him. You emulate him because you've received his love. Do you understand the order here? John is very focused on this order all throughout his letter. And one of the reasons I love this particular letter is John speaks in this circular pattern where he kind of always talks around his point, touches on everything on the fringes of it, almost like a spiral, focuses in on the center dot as he gets closer and closer to his point. Now, he wants us to love like Jesus. He wants us to follow the message that we've heard from the beginning, but he wants it to be because we know what we know. We know the love that we have received, not just that's been modeled for us. So my question to you this morning, churches, is have you received the love of Christ for yourself? Or are you among us this morning as somebody who maybe academically understands something that Christ did historically and you want to copy him as if his function is to be a good teacher? Or has your sin been nailed to his shoulders? Did he die for you? See, what Christ came and did when we say that Christ laid down his life for us is that God's command, God's demand on us is perfection. He is a holy and just God. And not one of us is righteous in our flesh. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were dead in the trespasses in which we once walked. Under the power of the prince of the power of the air, we were slaves to our sin. But what did Pastor Doug say? He preached to us in his, in his call to worship. But God, being rich in mercy, the very nature of God, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. This God whose name is love has poured out that love on you. That's what makes you a Christian. And if that's merely an academic exercise, good luck trying to love your brother. I don't know if you've met the brothers. They're not very lovable. We will only love one another with the undeserved kindness of God if we have been recipients of the undeserved kindness of God. We have to taste it before we can share it. And it is by this that we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone among you has not tasted and seen this love for yourself, I would love to encourage you to pause and set aside your assumptions and to talk to your pastor. You can come and talk to me, and I would love to walk you through what it looks like to actually fall before Christ and receive for yourself his goodness versus just to think about it and academically ascend to it. You got to know it. You got to taste and see it. And so let's follow the argument. This is the message we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And we know that we've passed from death to life if we love the brothers. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So we should lay down our lives for the brothers. Well, some of you guys are sizing that up now. Like, am I laying down my life for the brothers? Because John's telling me this is a blessed assurance. Do I have this assurance? Do I lay down my life for the brothers? And some of you are going to look at some of the decisions that you've made this week and you and your heart is not going to condemn you. I don't want to take that from you. The Lord absolutely may have poured out evidence in your life this week that his love does abide in you as you have faithfully loved the brothers. And you sit here today in confidence and that confidence is a gift from God. That assurance is a gift from God and I'm so pleased that that's where you are this morning. But there are other brothers here in this, in this, in this, what are we calling this, a park? I just have instincts to say room, right? Uh, there, are, there are other brothers beside you who are in a very different place this morning. They hear John say, look for the testimony, for the evidence of your new life in your love for the brothers. And they're like, I hate my brother. I don't love my brothers. I'm selfish. I'm arrogant. I'm proud. I'm greedy. I'm stingy. And they get real honest with themselves, and very quickly their heart begins to condemn them. And they say, I'm supposed to have assurance as I look at the testimony of my love for the brothers, and I don't see it. Not in the measure that I see it with Christ's love for me, that's for sure. And on that, and on that note, that's all of us. Well, John anticipates that too. And so next he says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Come on. So hold on. Even I'm not left out of this love of Christ. 
I who, who have a heart that is condemning me as I, as I look to, to him for this evidence, for this assurance, and, I, and, I, and my heart is condemning me, even I am not out of reach of the love of Christ. Yeah, that's what John is saying. By this you shall know that you're of the truth. And listen to this closely. Reassure our heart before him. Go back to what I said in the garden. What was our instinct before new life was put into us? To hide from him to cover ourselves with fig leaves, to retreat. He had to call out, where are you? I, he I heard you coming and I hid. When Moses said to, to God, let me see your glory, what did God do? He hid him in the cleft of the rock and he passed by him and let him see his backside, speaking his name over him and his kindness over him. But here John says that we who have the spirit, we who have this eternal life, we shall comfort and reassure our hearts before him. And not just before him. One day we will see him with unveiled face, face to face on that great day at Christ's return where we are, when we are reunited with him forever in body. We receive the resurrection of our bodies, our glorified selves, and this whole thing is made new. Amen? But even before that, we shall reassure our hearts today before him, before him. Goodness, guys, you don't have Christ walking beside you because you have Christ living within you. The very spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, the free gift of the Father sent to you by, because of the work of Christ on your behalf, the Lord God dwells within you. He has made you his temple, his living place. I mean, good night. You want reassurance? When your heart condemns you? Whenever our heart condemns us, John says, God is greater than our heart. Let me tell you something that is not true of the person who is not a child of God. When they take an accounting of their life and they spot sin, a lack of love for their brother, you know what their heart doesn't do? It doesn't condemn them. But when your heart condemns you, when you recognize in your flesh that you are not all that Christ was for you, and you realize that that shortcoming, that that rebellion, that that failure, that that wickedness and sin within you stands to condemn you before God and remind you that you need an advocate with the Father, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, such that even you who are weak in your labor for the brothers have the assurance of new life in you if your heart condemns you and drives you to your advocate. This is what John said in his previous chapter, if you've been following with us. He says, I, little children, I write these things to you in order that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father. He goes one further with us. He says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So you whose heart condemns you as you size up your works of righteousness and you find that they don't measure up, you cling to your advocate, you confess your sin, you know he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Amen? Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, okay? So there's this other person, right? The person whose heart does not condemn them. And John doesn't say to them, hey, it should be. He says, if your heart's not condemning you, you have confidence before God. Praise him for that. 
If your heart is condemning you, have confidence before God and turn to your advocate because God is greater than your heart. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Uh Uh-oh. We keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. Well, what, what commandment, John? Well, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. See, the, the sum of the law was in the great one, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our brothers as ourselves. And Jesus taught, and John is teaching again, that the great commandment, following the commandments of Christ, is to love our God and to love our brother. Listen, the reason you love your brother is because of God in them. You love your God so that when you see him in your brother, it causes you to love him. And you love your brother so that when the, in loving them, it causes you to love your God all the more. Because what did the Holy Spirit actually accomplish? We've been teaching this so much at Mercy's Door lately. What makes you a Christian is that you have been united with Christ and the perfect life that he lived for you in the sacrificial atoning death that he died for you and in the resurrection that he took up for you. Your hope of eternal life is completely tied up in your union with Christ, being made one with him. But guess what? If you're united with Christ, you got to be united with everyone else who's united with Christ. It's kind of a package deal. So now to love him, you must love all those who are united with him because we've all been made one just as he is one. Does this make sense to you? This is why we gather churches together like this. And there's one guy up here preaching one gospel and three different churches receive encouragement and adoration for their God as they hear it. Why? Because we are one in Christ. To love our God is to love one another. To love one another is to love our God. This is distinctly unique among the brotherhood. You do not love the world. You will not love the lost because of your union with Christ. They're not united with him, not yet anyway. That love is a different type of love. It's a missional love. It's a pursuing love. It's a love that drives you as a model of what Christ did for you. It's a beautiful love. But there's a distinct and particular love for the brothers that is true because the God who lives in you lives in them. You understand? Now, verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Well, how do I know that God abides in me? Well, by this we know, forth know, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. At this point, my church might be getting frustrated with me by how much I've been talking about this point because we want something tangible, don't we? You'd love for me, uh, there's part of you that would love for me to stand up here and say, by this you know. You do this, you do this, and then you do this. And John's given us some, some doing, right? The doing is to love the brothers but because you love your God. But he says, this is how you know that Christ abides in you by the Spirit whom he has given to us. Now, we probably have, many of us have an under-realized and underappreciated idea of the person and work and role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and that's why that's such a big labor for us at our church right now. But I need you to hear this, guys. How can you know that Christ abides in you? 
John doesn't give you anything except for this. By the Spirit whom Christ gave to us. This is such a simple and direct sentence to John that if you're scratching your head, I would encourage you to pause and work this thing all the way back and answer for yourself yet again, what makes you a Christian? Because the answer is the Spirit in you. So if you're asking, well, how do I know that the Spirit abides in me? My question to you is, are you a Christian? And then, well, I don't know. How do I know if I'm a Christian? Does the Spirit abide in you? You're like, give me something more. I can't give you more than God. God gave you himself. Can you identify him in you? I'll tell you, the the major obstacle for me in this is that I'm a glory hog. I'm a credit stealer, and it's probably your thing too. The Holy Spirit is doing things in you all the time, and then you're just like, that was me. That was me. Good job, flesh. Guess what? Your flesh is dead. It has been crucified with Christ that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Sorry, guys. You don't get to take credit for any of the evidence of life in you because you didn't do it. So we have to become better at talking about the hope that lives within us in the terms of giving credit to the one who lives in us. All evidence of life is the spirit in you, and we have to speak in simple terms. Otherwise, we turn the spirit into works of the flesh, and that's not who the spirit is. The spirit is the third person of the Trinity, almighty God living in you, and that's good news. Because let me tell you this. If you try to do any of the stuff that John's talking about by the power of the flesh, you simply can't. You simply won't. But in any given moment, because the living God lives within you, you can love your brothers with the love of Christ. And that's incredible. I like to tell this story. I'll share it as one example, and then you can try to think about some of the examples of your own life. I was hanging out at this park right across the street over here with my littles a couple of years ago. One was eight and one was five, uh, Boaz and and Gus. They were playing with some girls on this park over here, and then one of the mothers calls the little girl away and drives off with her, and Boaz, my older, became sullen and sits up against the wall there, and he just seems downcast. And I ask him what's troubling him, and he says, the Holy Spirit was telling me to share the gospel with that little girl, but I didn't have the courage. And then her mom called her away, and now I won't have the chance. And I celebrated in my heart that he cared at all about this because this is evidence of life, right? But I also grieved with him that in that moment, the, he, he yielded to the flesh, that, that the fear the want of approval of man, you know the stuff for you kept him from walking in what the spirit was doing in him, right? That's like the war between the spirit and the flesh. But then his little brothers, five or six at the time, puts an arm around him. That's okay, buddy. There's some kids over there. Let's go share the gospel. And they cross the park over to here and share the gospel with some boys that are playing in the park over here. And I have to picture that this is kind of what it was like when the disciples were sent out two by two that there was those moments of of real failure where I just call out to my advocate and I'm like, I know what you wanted, but my flesh, I yielded to it. And then a brother picks you up and says, no problem, brother. We have an advocate with God the Father 
Christ who died for us. Let's get up, walk this out, and go love these people over here. Like, how long are you hanging out in your self-condemnation when your heart testifies to you that you fail? How long do you hang out there before you run back to that throne room of grace confident in the work that was done for you? We say it a lot at Mercy's Door, the evidence that you believe the gospel is when you sin, do you run to the Father or do you hide from him? Do you confess your sin in the confidence that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness? Or do you seek to clean yourself up to make yourself approachable to him? It's a world of difference. That performance mentality says that God drafts me based on what I can do for him. He, he, he elects me based on, uh, based on my goodness and based on my righteousness. And the other one says it is by the merits of Christ alone by grace alone, by no works of mine alone that I am made a child of God. And so I walk with him because I love him. I obey him because he's worthy. I do it because that's my new nature. It's entirely different. It's the difference between working from the love of God and working for the love of God. And John describes a love that drives us to work from it instead of for it. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now I want to end my, my sermon this way to say that when three churches get together like this, there's an opportunity for us to align on first things of first things. Whatever our differences may be, I don't know what they are. But whatever our differences may be, we unite on this that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That your faith is a free gift of grace that no man may boast. What makes you a Christian is a work of God on your behalf, not anything that you did for him. Can we all get an amen on that? So when we pursue this city, when we seek to love those on the playground, when we seek to invite our neighbors in, when we go to our places of work, when we seek to advance the kingdom of God that more can taste and see the goodness of the love of Christ, this is the gospel message. Not clean yourself up so that you can be made right with God and not come worship with me because life will be so much better if you're with God. Not some prosperity gospel that says that, that we come to God so that he can make this life so great for us. And not some, some legalist, legalistic message that says that you got to do all of these things in order to be made right with him. But the simple message that we heard at first, John emphasizes it at length, is that God pours out his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners... So as you spread this message, my encouragement to you, and as you pray about whether or not that love for your brothers and the love for the lost is even in you, right, that you could drive back, my prayer for you is that you remember the gospel for yourself, that you taste and see again that, that by this you know love, that he came for you, lived for you, died for you, and rose for you, and that's what makes you a Christian, your union with him by the Spirit. To invite people in anything else is worthless, worthless. We don't have a worthless message. We don't have a worthless God. I'll leave you with this illustration. Pastor I love, he, sa he, he says it like this. He says, you remember, you guys know the story of the Passover? Just give me a yes if you know it. Yeah. Okay. Story of the Passover, the destroyer is passed through as the final of the 10 plagues on the land of Egypt as God hears the cries of his people and seeks to liberate them from their oppression. 
and his judgment of sin is coming on, on the land for, for specific people in a specific time for a specific reason. It's, and as, as awful as it was, it pales in comparison to the judgment that is to come for the sin that remains on, the, on that great day of the Lord's return. But in this little microcosm, little, po- little portrait of what it's like to see God's judgment rain down, he gives instructions to his people to take the blood of a lamb and to paint it on the, on the post and lentil of their doorstep. And if they do this in accordance with what God says, then, then the blood of the lamb will protect them from the judgment of God and the destroyer as he passes through the land of Egypt. And this pastor I love, Alistair Begg, he talks about this. He, he imagines that day. And he says, imagine the two men painting their doors, their, their, their doors side by side. And they're talking to each other. And one guy says, man, this is scary. I'm scared about tonight. And the other guy says, well, I'm, I'm not. I mean, God told us what to do. We're doing it. You know, it's like we, we got the blood. We, we're doing the thing. Like, did you do it? Well, yeah, I, I did it, but this is scary. And the one guy goes into his house that night after he does all those things. He's under the blood of the lamb, and he sleeps like a baby. And he just, he knows that he's done all the things. He's gotten his staff ready. He ate the thing, and now he's sleeping and waiting. The other guy stays up all night long, just like clenching the table and just waiting for it all to be over. Which man was saved? They were both saved. And John is talking about, that. John is talking to us about, listen, if your heart's condemning you or whether you have confidence before God, it's not about the size of your faith, the greatness of your faith. It's about the greatness of the object of your faith. The greatness of God who is faithful and just to redeem all who are under the blood of the Lamb. And our atoning sacrifice was Jesus Christ, one and all. So whether you are the weaker brother or whether you are the one who is bold and strong in your faith, you have an equal share in the kingdom of God because it was never about you, you understand? So we don't say anything else to those who we share the gospel with. We invite them in and then we let the Lord do what he wants to do in his measure of kindness in their life, you understand? So we're going to pray for that for Mascuda this morning, for Scott Air Force Base, and then we're going to labor for it together in the weeks ahead. Will you pray with me now?